Welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by the Auckland Faculty of the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners. I'm Dr Louise Kugler and today I'm talking to Dr Anna Lawrence about the management of acute urinary retention in primary care. Anna is a New Zealand trained urologist. She is the current president of Continents New Zealand. Since returning home to New Zealand, she has been striving to increase the education and standard of reconstruction of neuro-urology in New Zealand. Anna enjoys presenting both nationally and internationally to ensure she stays current. She currently holds a consultant post at Counties Manukau District Health Board and works in private in Auckland. Welcome, Anna. Thank you. So today we're talking about the incidence, etiology and a clinical approach to acute retention with a brief discussion on surgical management options, firstly in men and then in women. So Anna, how is urinary retention defined and how common is it? So urinary retention in a classic medical terminology is the inability to voluntarily pass an adequate amount of urine and can be attributed to your both acute and chronic etiologies. Practically speaking, that's your patient that attends who will tell you that they can't urinate. Uh, they've got discomfort in the suprapubic area. They may be distended to look at. They'll have some urgency. They'll be feeling like they want to go back and forth to the toilet. And more frequently, they're very distressed and uncomfortable um, with it because it's very painful for a lot of people. Um, there, of course, are those who can't um, urinate who actually are not in pain whatsoever um, but haven't passed urine and they've come to see you sort of as a oh and by the way doctor I can't pass any urine. It's actually very frequent something like 50% of gentlemen once they get over 70 at one stage or another will have an episode of urinary retention um, and henceforth it's a good idea to have um, a simple management plan on how you're going to address it um, both immediately and going forth once the catheter is in place. So what are the common causes of retention in men? So we sort of defined retention into spontaneous and precipitated. So spontaneous is your uh, classic group of patients who are um, may have a history of lower urinary tract discomfort or problems who, who go into retention. And probably 80% of that relates to benign prostatic hyperplasia or BPH. Um, patients who get that more frequently from the data we have the community tend to be the older gentlemen so over 70 have had a history of lower urinary tracts that they may have come and complained about before they have a low peak flow which you may or may not know um, ultrasounds may show that they've got lots of urine left behind when they do empty and when you examine them they've got quite a large prostate um, retention that uh, is precipitated is something we define as they've had an event. So they've come in and had surgery for some reason or another, be it orthopedic, general surgical, even neurological, and the catheter just doesn't come out after the uh, anaesthetic. Sometimes it's related to the surgery itself and it may be considered a consequence of the surgery. Sometimes it's just a combination of their age and the anaesthetic is a bad, com uh, bad combination and so they can't avoid afterwards. Also patients who've over-distended the um, bladder, patients who've had in, in um, urine tract infections and patients who've started new medications, particularly the medications uh, for mood stabilisation can put them into retention. The reason we define the difference is the patients who have had a precipitated event normally are more comorbid and therefore often actually it's an indication that they're not going to do very well in the next five to ten years as a general view of their health. You talked about having a management plan. Talk us through this. So when I um, 
think of managing acute retention unfortunately as she as a urologist we don't manage it a lot our registrars manage it for us so hopefully they do what we say um, for a male patient normally you need to alleviate the distress of having not been able to avoid so that involves putting a catheter in if you don't put catheters in very often I'd always go for a urethral catheter um, they're not as scary as you think they might be and I'd start with a 16 or an 18 for a gentleman. The reason we start with slightly larger ones that often transverse through that obstructive prostate easier, the smaller you get the more likely they are to twist on themselves and you'll end up in a place where you don't want to be and then you're not going to alleviate the obstruction and get that urine out. It's always important to remember that you need to get urine from your catheter before you inflate the balloon and make sure that the little Y junction or the hub is actually up to the meatus of the penis. If you don't um, you can inflate it in the prosthetic urethra and if you do do that it's exceptionally painful for your patients so if you have done it by accident um, they will be instantly in pain more pain than they already were and it's worth just deflating um, removing your catheter and you may find that you've got a bloody tip on it if so everyone does it don't worry ring the registrar at the hospital and send them in once you've actually inflated the balloon and they're draining the urine uh, it's quite important to just get a rough idea of how much urine they put out if they put out over a litre it's fairly unlikely that they're going to have a successful trial without catheter um, simply because they've probably over distended their bladder and they may have an element of hypotonic or atonic musculature to their bladder so they're not going to be able to empty effectively when the catheter comes out the other reason we like to know how much comes out is there is a condition called the post-obstructive diuresis where so if they put out a thousand and then they put out another 250 the next hour and then another 250 the next hour they're going to develop renal failure because their kidneys got very excited about being able to create urine um, and so that's something that actually needs to be admitted to hospital for um, IV support for the fluid output. Normally it takes one or two days to stabilise but it's quite important to um, recognise because they can develop high potassium, low sodium and um, have acute cardiac events related to that. So if you think your patient's got a post-obstructive diuresis, again, just get on the phone and give us a ring. We're happy to just keep an eye on them. Other than that, uh, once it comes out, then you need a plan for removing the catheter. So with this patient, what physical examination do we need to do in this acute stage? I think uh, acutely, often you, you would have already examined their abdomen to make sure that you're happy that it's a big bladder. Um, once you've got the catheter in, if they're feeling comfortable, you can examine their prostate, get an idea of how big the prostate is. Often if they've got an infection, their prostate enlarged at that time and it doesn't add a lot to the long-term management. Um, I would examine it just to make sure that you don't think they've got a nasty prostatic cancer that sometimes is going to present um, late with urinary obstruction. Um, the other thing I would do is send a urine off once you've actually um, got the catheter in just in case it is a bladder infection and you want to make sure that you treat the, with the right antibiotics so the patient has a larger chance of getting catheter free. Um, if you think your patient might have had something unusual going on, you always have to think of things like a um, stroke or a cord equina and a spinal injury where they can't avoid, it's good to ask the patient about symptoms around neurology, like have you noticed you can't get out of the chair, are you moving your bowels, are you moving them too much, when did they start, have you got any back pain, and then if you think there might be something going on, a quick neurological exam of the lower limbs is always useful to rule that out. Um, and of course, we'll talk about females later, but vaginal exams are essential for women who have come in in retention. You've mentioned a trial removal of 
catheter and some are more successful than others. At what point do we think about doing this? I think um, if it's the patient's first presentation um, and they may have a history of grumbling along with lower urinary tract uh, symptoms previously that they just haven't bothered to mention or they sort of have just managed as a lot of New Zealanders choose to do. Um, you can trial a removal of the catheter in three days time. It's important to sort of look at the patient and go what reversible reversibility is there here for this patient? Do they have an infection? Can I treat that infection? Do we think they've got benign prostatic hyperplasia or bladder outlet obstruction? Shall I start them on an alpha blocker? Um, if they've got diabetes that's out of control, you know, shall I try and treat their diabetes or do diabetes education? Once you've identified what you think you can reverse, I would then leave the catheter for approximately two to three days and organise to have it removed. I'm really lucky, obviously working in the DHB, I can just get my continence nurses or my district nurses to remove them, but I think um, they're a really good resource for having catheters removed and I would encourage um, people in the community to touch in with them. What they tend to do is they have a standardised approach to removing catheters which is very much subscribed um, and it doesn't require a lot of variation very often. Um, what we do is after about three days, once you've started your alpha blocker or treated your infection, um, get the catheter removed in the morning, encourage the patient to drink but not drown themselves in fluid. Patients sometimes get a little bit excited and can suddenly drink two or three litres in an hour. You want them to drink a normal amount but at least drink a litre within the next four hours. Then um, they should be voiding. Most DHBs will have a system where either district nurses see them at home and scan them to make sure they're emptying or they have a hub that the patient attends and they get scanned to make sure they're emptying. Depending on your patient, but most patients if they've got a post-void residual after a trial of under 100 or 100 cc's of fluid, that's fine and they should be fine after that. So Anna, you've mentioned starting an alpha blocker. I wonder if you can talk us through this. So there is some research that came out sort of 10 years ago now that showed that if you start an alpha blocker with a patient who presents in retention, they will have an 80% success rate of getting the catheter out. If you don't, it's about 50%. So it's worth, if your patient can tolerate an alpha blocker, starting an alpha blocker. Other medications such as flunisteride, which is obviously designed to shrink the prostate, that actually takes three months to work. So in the acute setting, it's not of great use for you. So that's where an alpha blocker is really important and obviously antibiotics if you think they've got a bladder infection. I always start them on doxazacin in New Zealand because that's Pharmac funded um, and you need them to be up to a therapeutic dose so four milligrams has been the smallest dose that's been effective. We see a lot of patients on two milligrams and to be honest if they can't tolerate four milligrams I wouldn't bother with the two milligrams because it's not going to do anything um, for their prostate and they're more likely to have side effects from it so it's a, a drug of no use for them at that time. Um, if they've had two to three days of an alpha blocker, then in theory if it's going to work for them to get the catheter out, that's a good time to do it. They do peak at about two weeks in terms of their effect, um, but after two, th two to three days it should have reached a um, level in the bloodstream that it's effective for removal of the catheter. So um, doxazacin, four milligrams, warning them about the dizziness, the postural hypotension, nasal stuffiness, a lot of people really don't like that, um, and also um, lethargy. Um, I think when you're a little bit older and someone gives you something that makes you tired, that doesn't make for a favourable feedback to your doctor. Um, and then that's all I'd start initially. I wouldn't start flunisteride in the acute setting. It's not going to bring about any benefit for you. Um, and if they need that, generally speaking, by then normally a urologist has reviewed them or a nurse specialist. So Anna, we've 
started our doxazacin, we've waited three days, we've taken the catheter out and it's failed, what do we do then? So the men that fail, they tend to the men that are older, their prostates are bigger, they had a huge volume that you drained, so over a thousand mils. Um, they may have had a history of significant lower unitrics, they may have been on an alpha blocker before that they didn't bother taking or they just didn't bother to tell you. So those are the patients that are less likely to pass. I think um, if they failed once and they don't fall into that category, it's always worth um, just checking your urine, making sure it wasn't an infection and you had the right antibiotics um, and giving them another go, but leaving it in a little bit longer and waiting for that alpha blocker to have more of an effect. So normally a second trial I would do it five to seven days. If they've had two trials, so say they fail the second trial with you, it's unlikely they're going to pass the third trial. Lots of patients will ask for a third trial, so you may see that we offer them that in the DHB, just because um, they don't want to come forth for surgery, and that's fair enough, I think. You know, to reassure them it's the right decision, there's no harm in trialing a third time. But if they fail their second um, trial without catheter in the community, it's worth referring in um, to your local DHB urology. Do we need to do any further investigations with these people? I think it's really useful that the patients have a, a workup. Often um, a good history examination is really useful, um, ensuring that um, an ultrasound is always useful. That helps us look at the upper tracts, make sure they're not um, chronically hydronephrotic, which means they may have been obstructed. Also indicates if you've got a catheter and if that hasn't resolved, then it's actually not the prostate that's the source of the issue. Um, digital rectal examination to estimate how large their prostate is is helpful in terms of is flinisteride a good choice of medication should they have this type of surgery versus this type of surgery um, and a PSA is very variable and quite controversial because if your patient's just had a catheter put in um, just putting the catheter in and giving it a smack as you go through the prostate is going to make it elevated having a catheter in place is going to make it elevated um, so it's entirely up to you and how comfortable I think that you and your patient feels because obviously if it's elevated it changes the workup going forward for that patient. So sometimes surgery is required in the setting for men with refractory urinary retention. Tell us about this. In terms of what we do now for patients who can't void, assuming they've got uh, prosthetic, sorry, bladder outlet obstruction due to their prostate, um, traditionally speaking, when I finished medical school, sometimes we'd do these patients as sort of an acute procedure, but we no longer do that simply because uh, it's safer to have a catheter in a community and go on an elective list than it is to come in and have your prostate treated um, for a TURP or such um, acutely, because acute related surgery for TUR uh, disobstruction has a higher rate of morbidity and mortality. So now what tends to happen is we put our patients on a waiting list um, and like with everything in the DHB they have to wait a while which is not great um, but as long as they're emptying their bladder and the catheters remain fairly um, asymptomatic it's, it's fairly safe for the patients. In terms of what surgeries we have we've got a bit of a range to choose from now and it's very dependent on your surgeons that you have available in your DHB um, and the level of comfort with all the new technologies. So we still have monopolar TURPs that we train everyone in New Zealand how to use, which is your traditional um, TURP, which is what everyone thinks that urologists do day in, day out. And if you've ever been in the operating theatre, it has that particular smell to it. So that has remained the same. That still is considered the gold standard that all the other deobstructive surgeries are compared to. Um, we also have bipolar uh, TURPs now, um, which removes the element of the old-fashioned TURP syndrome, which was the hyponatremia that people dreaded. Uh, we also have lasers, um, 
available is green light lasers, homeion lasers and the thymium lasers. In New Zealand and a lot of the DHBs we have the HOLIP which is the homeion laser we use to inoculate out which is if you can imagine like taking a spoon and scooping out the lobes of the prostate and then bringing them out. That was actually revolutionised by a gentleman from Tauranga um, and hence most urologists in New Zealand have had some exposure to it. Uh, green light has been really embraced by the Australasian Urology Group, predominantly because there's quite a few gentlemen in Australia doing it, but I don't think anyone in New Zealand actually has it. Um, and then the thermium laser is not widely available, um, and if you look at the recommendations currently, um, the randomised controlled trials are not strong enough to be able to put this as a standard recommendation. So currently, to be it monopolar or bipolar, or the homium laser are the, what's recommended by randomised controlled trials in large groups. Um, again though, it's to do with your surgeon, their comfort um, with the operation. You don't really want your patient to be the first one they give it a lash on, so to speak. Um, so outcomes really depend on the surgeon's um, comfort with the technology, comfort with the technique and their personal audit and outcome. In terms of safety, they're still fairly safe operations. Uh, the TURP used to be associated with a lot of complications when we used to use water, uh, we use glycine, we've limited our hours that we operate, sort of it must all be done in under an hour now. Um, we're more aware of how to manage our complications and how to prevent them, so they're fairly safe operations. Alternatives is the open prostatectomy, which is an old-fashioned um, steel incision um, where you sort of scoop out the lumps of the prostate. Um, slightly, it can be quite quick um, for someone who's efficient with it, uh, but it's quite comorbid, quite a difficult surgery. And I think if I had an older patient who had a very large prostate um, who needed over 100 grams that needed surgery, then a homium laser would be a safer operation for them. The other beautiful thing about using the holop or the homium is you can do it while they're on all these uh, anticola, anticola, oh, sorry, anticoagulants uh, that so many of the patients are on nowadays. So just moving on to women now briefly, tell us about how things are different here. So I think with ladies in urinary retention that um, it's not well done. <laughs> um, it's one of my, I guess, pet projects is the management of females and their urethras. Um, traditionally speaking, female urethras have been um, not treated with a lot of respect and um, hence we have a lot of poor practices both locally and internationally in the way we manage them. Um, about 3% of females coming to see a urologist will have urinary retention um, or partial obstruction that hasn't really been dealt with. Um, it's, so it's not common, but it's not uncommon and it does need to be addressed appropriately. When you think of females in the urinary retention, the most important thing to do in the community is to ensure they don't have a large obstructive mass uh, in the vagina. So classically speaking, before we used to do cervical cancer screening, it was always cervical cancer fungating through to the bladder and obstructing the ure urethra. Obviously now with better screening, it doesn't happen often, but it still does happen, particularly in our communities who don't screen. Um, so if you have a lady who comes in in retention, do do a vaginal exam, it's really important um, to make sure they don't have a uh, uterine cervical or adnexal mass that's blocking them. Um, females can also have bladder cancers that obstruct, um, normally it's a, unfortunately a really bad sign by the time that happens. Um, 
obviously just like a gentleman if the lady turns in she can't see she can't void she's got super pubic discomfort urgency and frequency but isn't actually emptying she will still need to be catheterized again i would just go for a 14 french catheter drain the bladder and just like the gentleman take off a urine make sure that your post void uh, sorry your void that comes out isn't in excess of a thousand mils and then just keep an eye on it in terms of making sure that she doesn't develop a post obstructive diuresis just as the gentleman can do um, it's easy to break it down for females into what is called the obstruction so obviously anatomical so urethra cervical bladder vaginal um, and then women have um, functional elements that often we don't talk about for male patients so there's um, Fowler's syndrome or Hinman syndrome um, which is the contraction of the pelvic floor or the bladder neck causing obstruction so they can't void. Um, you can have bladder failure, often um, older ladies develop bladder failure where the bladder just no longer contracts um, and you can also have infection so urinary tract infection, vulvovaginitis and spinal conjuries just like for the gentleman and also pharmacologically related as well. For the females, a detailed history is really useful. Um, a general and a pelvic exam, urinalysis, um, and a pelvic and renal ultrasound. So very similar to the male workup. Um, again, if there's no malignancy and you're happy that it's um, probably just an infection or a one-off, you can trial a, do a trial without catheter again with the district nurses or the continence nurses. If the females fail their catheterization or trial without catheterization, it's often useful to ask your district nurses or your continence nurses to get them to start learning how to self-catheterize um, because this replicates normal voiding more than having a catheter in and staying in. It's important to remember in our postmenopausal ladies that um, if you leave a urethral catheter in for longer than three to four months they're going to end up with uh, urethral atrophy where it can actually split the urethra right back to the bladder and then they just empty into their um, vagina continuously which is really difficult to treat and a really poor outcome for something that's avoidable um, and actually if you've got a patient who is postmenopausal and in a wheelchair or bed bound that can happen in up to 70% of them within three months so it's important to remember. Um, also with female patients who can't void there's a tendency to label it to be psychogenic um, and I think it's really important that we don't label females with psychogenic bladder disorders until they've been comprehensively um, investigated and normally this does involve urodynamics um, and you have to be quite circumspect I think um, to label within that because obviously once they've had that label they can't get rid of that label and they may have a genuine um, bladder disorder like Hermans or Fowler's syndrome which is very difficult to diagnose and a lot of urologists struggle to make the diagnosis as well. Um, Anna, you've mentioned vaginal atrophy. Should we be thinking about Avestin and topical estrogens? Um, I think Avestin and topical related estrogens are brilliant for a female's pelvic floor and urethral health. Um, a lot of women and a lot of their lower urine tract discomfort, both voiding and overactivity and not being able to void and bladder pain can all be resolved with Ovestin. Um, I belong to a group of females in neurology, it's called, that's an um, American board group and a lot of those ladies feel that every woman who comes into their office should leave with Ovestin for their vaginas. Um, it works wonders. I think it's worth uh, perimenopausal ladies and postmenopausal ladies being placed on it if they've got any lower urinary tract issues, both retention, bladder pain, overactivity and recurrent UTIs. It's an amazing medication in that respect. Yeah, I think it's great. And pelvic floor physiotherapy? Pelvic floor physiotherapy 
with a pelvic floor physio who has done the specialist papers is great. I think if you pa- think your patient's got a hypertonic pelvic floor, so they it's so wound up because they've decided they're going to take on Pilates or yoga or CrossFit or something like that recently, and they've actually been engaging their pelvic floor in the wrong way, they can actually end up having difficulty with emptying, so they can end up with retention, they can end up with overactivity, recurrent UTIs, and that's where a pelvic floor physio uh, is worth their weight in gold, Um, and in my private practice I would say I'm seeing probably 50% of new patients who are women who have taken on new exercises and unfortunately engaged their pelvic floor in the wrong direction. so I am a huge advocate for using the pelvic floor physios. I think they do an amazing job. And it avoids surgical interventions, long-term um, medication use, which obviously is always much better for our patients long-term. So if you've got a pelvic floor physio in your area, um, it's worth utilising them. Most of the DHBs do have a referral system for both female and males now for pelvic floor. Um, and if you're unsure, Continents New Zealand, we have a list of um, pelvic floor physios who have done the extra papers who are passionate about it. Perfect, thank you. And to conclude our podcast today, Anna, what would your take-home messages be for our listeners? I think for urinary retention, both male and females, uh, it's important to de-obstruct your patient any way you can to start with. Um, trial, be confident in trialling without a catheter in the community. If you're unsure if, or if they fail it more than twice, then definitely refer into urology. That's what we're there for. We're there to support that. Um, if you think your patient's got slightly unusual urinary tract for some reason, it just doesn't seem to follow your standard um, fashion again please refer or give us a ring um, but definitely everyone's capable of de-obstructing putting a catheter in and um, giving it a go because nine times out of ten it's successful and it's fairly simple thank you Anna it's been a pleasure talking to you today if you're a New Zealand GP and would like to claim CPD points for listening to this podcast fill in the reflection of learning form found at goodfellowunit.org here you'll find a list of resources that we've talked about on this podcast thank you for listening